Part two, Jeff Nice reflects upon the first time he saw the memorial for the victims of the Beltway snipers. So walking along, and all of a sudden in the distance, I see this very picturesque setting. There's a concrete patio, maybe 50 feet by 50 feet, and on are these two structures standing maybe four feet by eight feet tall, and three or four concrete benches. Nice uh, landscape around it and a lake behind it. So I was real curious about what this was. So I go walking over there. I go up to the first uh, uh, structure sitting there, and I look at it. I gotta tell you, I'm stunned. It's the 10 names of the people killed in the DC region uh, during October of 2002 by the snipers. And every one of those names had a meaning to me, especially those killed in Montgomery County. James Martin, James Sonny Buchanan, um, Walker, the cab driver, uh, Lori Ann Lewis Rivera, whose two-year-old daughter was in the van at the time, um, Conrad Johnson, the bus driver that was uh, uh, killed at the time. And uh, it just struck me. Welcome to Game of Crimes. I'm sorry. This <laughs> here is a guy, highly trained SWAT operator. All I can think of you is in one of the frickin' hospital gowns with your ass hanging out. You're wheeling everything into your bathroom to get to your secret stash of weights. What have we sunk to? Oh, it's super light, lightweight. So I exercise again, and of course my heart rate goes up. I didn't think about it, and they come rushing in. I get caught. <laughs> Did they take your weights away from you? They were so cool about it. They said, "Look, oh, okay. we don't get you." But uh, you can work out. Just tell us when you're going to. So, so they're, really, they're really good about it. Oh, God. You know, crazy shit, man. I, I thought you did some other crazy shit. This is crazier than taking down the snipers almost. It's like, okay, I've, I've, technically I was dead for a couple minutes, but I'm alive now. So let's go hit the treadmill and get some weights. You know, and, and you're about to impose a heart attack on these nurses because you're thinking, oh, hell, he's coding again. <laughs> hey, can I share with you my air cat hat? You what? Oh yeah, no. I I want to hear that story because that I I know exactly the scene you're talking about from Apocalypse Now. Uh, by the way, Robert Duvall lives here in Loudoun County, and I've run into him a couple times over at the place called Fireworks Pizza. He's a little older now. Oh, and by the way, before you tell that story, here's my one connection. My grandfather, um, my my grandparents grew up in Colorado, and there's this place called Uray, Colorado, which is where they filmed the original True Grit. And so John Wayne and Robert Duvall were in the original True Grid, and Robert Duvall was Ned Pepper. You, 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 don't, you only see him for about 10 seconds, but my grandfather is one of the old-timers rocking back and forth on the porch in Uray, Colorado, when Ned Pepper comes riding into town, Robert Duvall. And so when I ran into Robert Duvall over there, he said, hey, you've actually worked with my grandfather before on the film. And it, Well, he, he was only there for 10 seconds. He had no idea it was, but that's my claim to fame. I can say, hey, I've got people who are in a film with Robert Duvall. But let's hear your... Your, your story's better. Tell us about the aircraft hat, because that goes back to uh, uh, Robert Duvall and Apocalypse Now. And uh, what happened was, months uh, before I uh, ended up going to the stem cell transplant, uh, my team had given me an aircraft hat, like the one worn by Robert Duvall in the movie Apocalypse Now. We replaced aircraft uh, Colonel. I'm trying to remember his name uh, that he plays. I can't recall, but uh, the point is, in the movie Apocalypse Now, uh, uh, Duval plays this air calf colonel and they attack this Viet Cong visit, village in the Vietnam War. 
And the battle is ended when a napalm strike uh, finishes it. And one of the famous scenes that uh, uh, Duval is in, he's on the beach. He picks up a sand, he's on one knee, and his buddies are gathered around. And he talks about, in a nutshell, he goes, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. morning. It smells like victory. So I had brought some special attire. I wouldn't see something out to my team the next day to let them know I appreciate the hat that they gave me. So my wife's there, she's got the camera. So I put on my air cab hat that they had given me. And I get down on my knee and uh, dressed up like Robert Duvall. And I say, I love the smell of stem cells in the morning. It smells like victory. <laughs> <laughs> but see, you have to play it, though, with what he did on the speakers, too. He was playing the ride of the Valkyrie, so Wagner. So oh, Wagner. yeah, my gosh, it's such a great song. Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. Wagner. Hey, yes, but, but before we transition off of this, though, um, very poignant moment for you, though, because when you were diagnosed, you didn't tell anybody only the medical staff knew and your wife knew Jane, but there was a reason why you didn't tell anybody. Tell us why. Well, at that time, my mom was in her final days of cancer. and She was dying, and my son was 10 years old, and he was concerned about uh, his grandmother. And I did not want him to know about me, given all that was taking place. I thought the uh, focus needed to be on my mom's last days. And ironically, uh, the month that I was diagnosed early August is the month my mom died later that August. Man, uh, look, but, you know, just the fact that, uh, you know, um, we've all had parents pass away. You know, my, both my mom and dad have passed away. And for you, to, for you not to share that information and because it was more important to you that the focus be on your mom, I mean, just says things about your character, man. Absolutely. Just, you know, and looking out for your son. Yeah. How, how old's your son now? He's 18. And, uh, you know, a driving force for me to survive was my son. I want to see him... Uh, do his early things in life, uh, get his first job, get his driver's license, graduate from high school. And fortunately, I've seen all these things happen. And yeah, it's just my desire. I told my doctors on day one I would be the first to survive this. And I kind of use, if I can share with you, the mindset from my book to survive, because it actually has uh, two applications, the name of that book. Yeah. Please yeah. do. Please do. Okay. The name of the book, Failure is Not an Option, the, the first uh, is uh, as applies to SWAT. As I told you earlier, I was an operator, team leader, and commander, for, and I was a uh, longest-serving guy with 30 years. But as a commander, there's three things I always ask of the men, and they deliver it every time. You never complain, you never quit, and failure's not an option as it relates to the mission. So they deliver it every time. So when I got ill, I took this same words and I applied them to, on the medical end. I said to myself, never complain, never quit, and failure's not an option as it relates to the mission. My mission was to survive, so I've kind of used that as my mindset to, to kind of push forward on the other half of my life, if you will. Yeah, that positive mindset, it's, it's not a joke. It's, if, you can, if you can beat that mental part, you know, it, it just, it, and in your case especially, it's been instrumental in helping you survive and to beat this, right? Oh, without question. Yeah. Hey, but um, the other thing, too, that was interesting, because uh, I just want to correct, we both, it was actually April 15th uh, with the Boston bombing. That's when you had your transplant. But five days before that April 10th, you got suckered into showing up for something. They, they told you, hey, we need you to report, Officer Jeff Nice and Sweet. And uh, they, Jeff, Jeff Splenda, you know. So what did they pull on you five days before you go in for the stem cell transplant, which you coded and you just simply glossed over and we had to bring you back twice to get you to tell us the story. So don't let tell us about April 10th. How did they surprise you? What happened was um, I was told to report to the uh, police headquarters 
for a discussion on active shooter protocols. So I show up and I walk in this room. The entire central SWAT team is there, um, our D-SWAT team, some executive officers, and my son was there. And I was so glad he was there. Um, and what I didn't realize is they're going to present me with a award, uh, the Living Legend Award. So uh, it's in Chiefs Daryl McSwain and Luther Reynolds call me forward. I was presented with this award called the Living Legend Award, and it was a, an award for my time in SWAT and SOD. I have to tell you, I cannot tell you how much that meant to me on two fronts. Number one, five days prior going into the unknown for your stem cell transplant, these guys reaffirmed to me, hey, we're with you. And then two, to bring my son and let him uh, see that. So for me, this is a very special time and moment. So thank you for bringing that up. Well, the reason I bring that up is that eventually all good things come to an end. Um, eventually, you have to retire. And, and I tell you, Montgomery County, and we both know Mitch Cunningham, a buddy of mine, uh, went on to Wilmington to become a deputy chief. He's the one that put us in touch with you. So, Mitch, this is your shout out. Um, but you you were able, Montgomery County took care of you. You were able to stay on SWAT in an administrative position you know, for a couple of years to get to your retirement. But Tell us about, there's two things I want to cover. One is the last raid that you did that your son got to go on with you. Tell us about that. Well, I was given my diagnosis. I knew that my time in SWAT was over. And uh, I believe it was, if I recall correctly, October of 2012. And I didn't know if I was going to make it to the duration. So I wanted my uh, son to uh, at least come on the last raid. So he stayed back with the tactical medics in safe position. He saw what took place. And... Uh, I was very thankful they could do that. And kind of playing off what you just said, Daryl McSwain, the uh, special director of Special Operations Division, he allowed me to stay in SWAT for the duration. I said, can I stay in an administrative position? I said, I said I'm not sure. You know, they knew I was, I was questionable whether I was going to make it until retirement. And McSwain made the point saying, Jeff, as long as I'm in SOD, you will be here. And that was huge because if I died, I went my... Uh, last memory of my son to be that of a SWAT commander. And they allowed me to do that. And what was amazing is my counterpart, the other sergeant SWAT, uh, Brian Dillman, he had to do double duties for uh, two years, basically, you know, because you should have two SWAT sergeants. I was simply doing whatever administrative tasks I could do. I'm very poor administrative tasks, so I wasn't much of a help to him. But, uh, um, but the, the point is, I was a mere puppet figure the last two years and Brian Dillman was a true SWAT commander, yet they let me hold that position in the events things went south. So I was very grateful to uh, McSwain and Dillman for doing those things for me. Yeah, but you got to talk about the raid, though, because you got to flashbang a couple of Oh, yes. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you make a great point there. So um, we had hit this place before, and common practice, we were just hitting them for guns and drugs. Common practice with drug dealers is to use pit bulls uh, to slow our entry so they can get to their guns and drugs. On a previous occasion, we had a officer who was bitten scrotum. Oh! Oh, yeah, by a pit bull. Oh. So an effective solution against uh, the dogs is pulling in a flashbang diversion device. It's basically a hand grenade with a uh, no fragmentation. Tremendous flash and bang, hence the term flashbang. It sends any dog running. We hit this place on a previous occasion, and my assignment was the kitchen. And on that occasion, I found a pit bull in the sink shivering with his hands over the, uh, uh, her paws over his eyes. So on this one, we deploy the flashbang again. And once again, same effect on the pit bulls. So I asked my, dad, uh, my son years later, my gosh, what do you remember most about that raid? He says, Dad, 
the pit bull that uh, pooped uh, at the front door. He said the team put like a, a, a carpet over it to cover it so they wouldn't step on it. I said, of course you remember that, you know? <laughs> but the highlight is, the reality is, you know, um, the pit bulls uh, don't get shot because they're not attacking police. And we turn the pit bull over to animal control. So they get a much better future thereafter. Right. Right. Uh, but just have a pit bull crap its pants right there on the door, lads, as you're coming through. Oh, now, quick story before we ask you the lesson. That reminds me of a guy that was one of our SWAT teams when I was a detective. Uh, they didn't quite figure that out, that you could throw a flashbang in and distract the dog. The dog comes at him. He shoots the dog, or misses the dog, shoots the speaker instead. So. <laughs> Oops. And you know what? It's still the same amount of paperwork, isn't it? Say it's a God, if you're going to do it, though, you know, yeah. But anyway, so they were getting attacked by the dog. Fortunately, he only shot the speaker, was my understanding. But uh, hey, hey, let me, but, before ahead, you, if you don't mind, let me uh, just touch on your positive mindset because I think it's really important here to your success and your survival. You know, um, you had a choice to make after you talked to Drew Tracy, right? You know, he gave you some great advice. And so you had a choice. What was what was that choice? What was the two choices? Uh, you have a choice. You know, either uh, uh, wait to die or choose to live. And I chose to live. And I developed okay. I developed a very specific plan on survival, on how I would do that. And preparation is the key to uh, anything successful. So I had a plan for that. And yeah. one one thing I would share with you is that uh, I had many lessons learned. So I have seven specific uh, uh, lessons in terms of how to survive life threatening diseases uh, or or, or a poor diagnosis in terms of, of, uh, of things to do that I've taken away from this. And did your faith play any part in this? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, amongst those seven things I talked about, the greatest is uh, uh, belief in a higher power. I believe that, uh, um, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person. I rarely go to church, but I've always believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe I'm here because of some efforts I have made, but also because of his divine intervention. I agree 100% with you, brother, and just glad, glad yeah. to have you here. Holy cow, this is, this is unbelievable. You keep talking about your seven rules. Let's go through them. And thank you for sharing this, because I, well, the reason I would like to share this is I hope that it'll help people who have life-threatening diseases or family members and help them improve their quality of life. Um, the first is obvious, uh, the best of medical professionals. And I was very fortunate to have my oncologist, John Walmart, one of the best in the world, um, Badgers, who performed my stem cell transplant, awesome. And from NIH, uh, he's a captain when I met him, but he's now the Assistant General of the United States and Upper Rear Admiral, uh, Richard Childs. Those three guys are phenomenal. Now, you can have the best medical professionals, but it means nothing unless I do my part, patient responsibility. I have to make my effort the best I can so that what they do uh, works. Number three, and this was a big one to me, Early on, about six weeks into my treatment with heavy chemo, you get what's called chemo fog. It's recognized by the American Cancer Society, and you're in this fog, and you're kind of out of sorts. So I got up one day, and I saw uh, that my room was complete disarray. My bed was not made. Clothes were all over the place. So what I did is, I, this back in 2012, I made my bed. And thereafter, I picked up my room. And what I found by doing that task it was a very positive thing. It led to many more positive tasks over the course of the day. Now, what's interesting is uh, I learned that in 2014, a Navy SEAL, Admiral McRaven, gave the commencement speech at the University of Texas. 
Uh, yes, and what he talked about was making your bed and how it leads to many positive tasks thereafter. Yep. And, you know, I learned that uh, the hard way in 2012. I imagine he'd been doing his whole life. And I got to tell you, the man was spot on. He was amazing. So I start every day by making my bed positive notes, sense of order. Then the fourth thing that's important to me, now, as you know, I'm into exercise. So uh, um, what I found is that if I could exercise at any level for 30 minutes to help me, the reason I say this is because every day when I woke up, I was nauseous, had a headache, was in this fog. If I could exercise at any level for 30 minutes, even walk at an incredibly slow pace, what happened is the nauseous feeling would go away, the headache would go away, I would suddenly come out of this fog. I've often speculated and wondered if it was uh, because of endorphins that are released during exercise that bring you happiness or peace of mind. So I start every day by making my bed and exercising. Um, number five, and this is an important one, nutrition. Now, I'm not gonna get all the specific details, but there are a lot of things you can do in terms of nutrition that will help you with cancer and your choices. There are some uh, poor choices you make as well, but what I'll simply say on a nutshell is that Sometimes you can't receive your chemo treatment because your labs are out of sorts. So what I did is I researched and found things to nutritionally keep my labs back uh, on the level so I could get the chemo. Because what I saw with my mom when she died, there were gaps in treatment. And when there were gaps in treatment, her uh, health declined. So I decided I would not have a gap in treatment. Platelets, for example, can be an issue when you're taking all these, this chemo. They get uh, real low. I learned that omega-3s can help platelets. I, had salmon for two weeks straight for dinner. They went back to the norm. I learned that uh, other things, uh, alkaline phosphate, AST and ALT, all related to the liver function. My liver function was out of the norm. Water and lemon juice, two weeks later, back in the norm. Kidney function uh, can be an issue. Big hydration, berries, particularly strawberries, uh, raspberries, things of that nature, got them back in the norm. But my point is, there are a lot of things in the nutrition that you can do to help yourself. We all suffer from inflammation as we older, as, as I'm sure we all know. Inflammation was turmeric, it's a spice, mixed with black pepper, because that helps the absorption. And also scallions, onions, all are very good at reducing inflammation, inflammation, which is important when you have cancer. So these are some of the aspects related to nutrition. Um, that was number five, is that correct? correct? Six, this is so important. The support of family and friends. And I say that because my first chemo treatment that I went for, I walked in the doctor's office. I walked in, 30 people were there. My entire central SWAT team, members of the D-SWAT team, some executive officers, and my wife. And they only allowed back then four people back in the uh, treatment area. So my wife came back and three others. And when I came out one hour later, everybody was still there. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and that, wow. told, that told me that these people were my brothers for life. And I cannot tell you the measure of support and the strength it gives you at that moment in time. And my counterpart, Brian Dillon, the other SWAT sergeant, what he did was every time I had treatment, two or three SWAT officers were there. They'd come back with me for the duration of the treatment. And I cannot tell you what that means as you're trying to get through each day. It's a struggle. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, you know, saying this, so what that does is that promotes the in your mind that you don't want to let your partners down, do you? Absolutely, because you know, uh, they do anything for me and I do anything for them. Those guys are awesome. And, of course, you know the last one, the most important one of them all. Uh, yeah, faith, and for me, a higher power, and for me, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe these six things that I've worked on in the divine intervention is why I'm still here today.
God bless you, brother. We're with you. We're not there with you physically, but we're with you. Thank you. Murphy would like to talk to you about his hemorrhoids and inflammation. So maybe you guys can go offline and talk about what you can do to help him with uh, the inflamed stuff yeah. there. And I've taken it to a personal level and given it a name. It's called Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Just when you thought you're done with it, it pops back up and rears its ugly head. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I thought you had an A-game, Murph. Apparently not today. No, uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm ahead of you, as a matter of fact. Just like usual, but that's another story. Yeah. Well, hey, but Jeff, um, let's kind of bring this to a close. There's there's two things left. One is September 30th, 2014. Let's talk about your last day. Okay. Sept- uh, last day of the department. Yep. Wow. You know, the last day I drive my uh, SWAT vehicle to the uh, Special Operations Division, and my counterpart, Brian Dillman, is going to be a ride back in his vehicle. So I have my last horse with guys in SWAT. They're all awesome. And uh, as I get into his vehicle for him to drive me back, he's brought my son. So my son's in the car. And as I look out, all of a sudden I see all these motor officers, motorcycle uh, cops, probably uh, 30 of them lined up on their motorcycles. And it's you know, pretty amazing to me. What happens is I get this escort back to my house. And... Uh, Instead of going directly to my house, they go by police headquarters. And uh, as I go by police headquarters, that's kind of uh, overwhelming. Out front, I, there are people out there saluting and, and stuff like that. It's kind of a crazy moment. And then uh, I'm following only two motor officers at this point. The rest of them had veered off. So I'm following two motor officers. And we kind of meander back to my house. And we make to turn back to come down where my house is at. As we turn down, turn that road all the other motor officers are lined up with their motorcycles on both sides at attention, saluting. And the, uh, in the front, there are uh, armor personal carrier and the SWAT team. Oh, jeez. Tell me about jeez. it. So I got to tell you, it, it was a pretty overwhelming moment as I looked at it. And fortunately, my, the one thing great that Brian Dillman has always done is he brought my son along to uh, witness all these events. I mean, it was very important to me. What a tremendous amount of respect by your colleagues. I, I can't think of anything they could have done any better to recognize you for your, your sacrifices, your dedication. The uh, citizens of Montgomery County and the National Capital Region lost a true asset when you were no longer on the job. That doesn't mean we've lost you, but, oh, that is just, you know what, brings tears to my eyes, and I wasn't even there. Well, I appreciate the great words. The only thing I will say that you're only as good as the people that you hang out with, and these guys are freaking incredible, you know? Oh, geez, and I'm hanging out with Morgan? Oh, my gosh. Hey, oh, i got to revisit this. <laughs> you know, you're, things have elevated for you, Murph. You never Ooh. knew you were going to be able to achieve and, you know, and uh, perform at this level. Speaking of that, Jeff, but last thing, because, uh, again, it's like you weren't done. There was just another challenge for you. Um, three months after you retire, you got a stroke. That's correct. Uh, okay, you're going to leave me hanging, or are we going to talk about this? <laughs> yes, uh, what happened was I got early morning hours, and— uh, Went to go to the bathroom. Next thing I knew, I found myself uh, on the floor. And I tried to get up. And the whole left side of my body, I just couldn't get up. So I called out to my wife, and she came in. And she immediately noticed that the whole left side of my face was drooped and suspected that I had a stroke. So I was transported to the hospital, and they confirmed that. And what happened was, uh, once again, going back to uh, the incredible things that guys would do, I am now retired. So I'm transported to uh, uh, Suburban Hospital. Well, across the street from where Suburban Hospital is, uh, Panera, and very often after the raid, the guys go there and have a uh, breakfast. Well, Jane calls the guys, and they all came and showed up. Yep. It was absolutely amazing. You know, 
I could I could barely uh, 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 talk. My whole face was drooped. This, that, and everything that goes with it. But you have no idea what it meant to have the whole guys come in there. You know, when you're you know grasping for your strength, they give it to you. Yeah, when you're hurting, they're there. Well, there's a story about Panera I want you to talk about, though. We're going to close off with this because it's the only practical joke you were ever able to. You got, <laughs> you're, you're too easy. You, you, you give it up. I mean, it's like, remind me not to rob a bank with you because you'll dime me out in a second. Yeah, I, I got it. But you were able to do one practical joke because of the mask, because of your treatments, and it involved Panera. Uh, that's correct. Uh, a guy named Jordan Young had given me a ride uh, to see. Uh, Dr. Badros, and at that time, my brother was coming to town a couple of days later, and my brother, to honor me, had shaved his head, and he, I told him I hadn't lost any hair, and sorry, but I'm not shaving my head for you. <laughs> so your brother didn't check with you before he shaved his hair? <laughs> and, 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 and we both laughed. So anyway, I told Jordan, hey, look, I said, um, you know, as you mentioned, I've never been able to pull off a joke on these guys. My brother completely opposite of me. You know, I'm completely serious. He's completely comical. This is right down his uh, uh, normal, what he does. I said, tell the team that when you picked me up, I had lost all my hair. He says, okay. And I said, if you see me come in or anybody, don't say a word. He goes, all right, I'm with you. So what happens is uh, my brother comes in town. And they go to Panera for breakfast like they always do. And even, they were always inviting me, no matter what. So I tell my brother, look, what I want you to do is you're going to dress exactly the same as I do. He and I are about the same height and build, so he, exact, he dresses the same way I do. And because I just had my stem cell treatment, I had to wear a mask, which covered half my face. And I said, I want you to go in here with your shaved head and act like, uh, you know, it's me. And what Jordan had told the team is, hey, when I took Jeff to uh, the hospital, he lost all his hair. So we pull in, my brother and I, and uh, he's dressed exactly as I am. And I see all our unmarked SWAT vehicles out there, so I know the guys are inside. I said, they sit in the back. So Todd comes walking in, and some of the guys go, he's dressed exactly as I would be, uh, in the jeans and this shirt that has a SWAT on them on and so forth. And the guys go, hey, Sarge, hey, Sarge. And one of our guys, often guy, Kendrick sees him, advises him to sit across from him. So he sits down with Kendrick, and Kendrick asks him a question. And Todd knew all my idiosyncrasies. He goes, roger that. And then somebody else asked him something, and he goes, hippie <laughs> So then this guy, uh, Steve Brown, goes, hey, uh, Sarge, can I get you a, a cup of coffee? And my brother was pushing with me. He said, he knew he was pushing, he goes, yeah, can I get a sesame bagel too? <laughs> He's, and uh, Steve Brown goes, sure. So Steve Brown gets him this coffee and bagel. So now they're in there carrying on. And then after about five minutes, I come walking in. I said, hey, guys, I see you met my brother. And it was dead silence. You couldn't hear a pin drop for like about 10 seconds. And then Steve Brown goes, you bastard, I bought you a cup of coffee and a bagel. Well, you know what I'm more unimpressed with is the fact is that they'd worked with you for how many years, and your brother pulled it off. He sat down there, and he pulled it off. And two of the guys, they always look after my welfare. Brian Dillman and Spiro Takis, um, they said they were getting a real call on ambulance. Apparently, Bob, my brother, had played the role so well, they thought I was so sick he needed to go to the hospital immediately. They said, it's good thing you, <laughs> they said, it's good thing you came in when you did. We were about to get an uh, ambulance transferred to the hospital. Oh, that's hilarious. And it's funny because my brother said later, he goes, I'm glad these guys had a sense of humor, or I knew I'd been in trouble. <laughs> so we all kind of laughed, but it was comical.
And did your buddy ask for his the money back for the bagel and the coffee? Nope. Todd still owes him that money. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be a recurring theme here, Murph. We got several people who either owed six packs of beer or, you know. Oh, everybody owes somebody something. Yeah, Zach and Kevin and stuff, they're still owed some beers. Yeah, we're going to have to take care of that. So, hey, well, Jeff... Let's end on a high note with that, too, because I, I got to tell you, you know, having lived in this area, but and you know about the stories, but you never get to know what really happened. And to talk with somebody who was there, who had eyes on, that, that was part of taking this down, and what you guys had to go through for those days, you know, protecting everybody else and doing the stuff. You know, again, you folks can't see me. This is me saluting you, saying thank you for everything you did. This It's been an awesome podcast, Murph. I mean, it's like we were talking about this when we were doing the pre-call. You were, I could see the, your veins. You were getting amped up. You were walking around. You were like, it's almost like you were thought you were there, you know, we're getting ready to breach the vehicle. Yeah, you know what? And it's, I know that that uh, the good Lord put me in the position I was supposed to be in law enforcement, 38-year career. Uh, never missed. I loved the, you know, loved 38 years of what I did. But you know, you pick the right career afterwards. When I talk to guys like you, Jeff, and I still get fired up. I mean, yeah, I, we were doing one yesterday, and my legs start shaking. And I know when that leg starts shaking, I'm probably going to be up out of my chair here in a minute. But if well, I happen to be in Florida right now, if I do that, I'm going to knock the table over. The camera's going to go flying. The headphones are going to peel off. You'll see me sitting in my underwear, and, and Morgan's excited when I see that. Are you in your underwear right now? Uh, don't well, stand up. Don't no. stand up. I don't want to know. <laughs> Hey, but there is one thing I want to mention, too, before we sign out of here, and that is uh, Jeff's book, Failure's Not an Option. I got my copy on Amazon and the Kindle version. Highly, highly, we highly recommend this. I mean, you talk about it just like we mentioned a minute ago, the, the positive mindset. This is a motivational book. No matter what you're going through in life, there's something in there for you. And, you, you know, you think this DC sniper, that's the most exciting thing he ever did? Uh-uh. He's got just story after story after story of, of SWAT operations that took place up in there. Some we may bring you back on the show, Jeff, to talk about yeah, the. We'll talk uh, the about bank discovery, robbers. the IFD, um, you know, and some other stuff. But like I said, great stuff. What a, what a career! Um, hey, final thing, you you did the book. What's next for you? What are you doing now? Um, I'm just kind of you know taking it as it comes. See, kind of riding this book. I've had some opportunities that may uh, well to uh, may lead to a documentary in the book. We'll see. I might. I don't want to be premature, but I'm hopeful of that we'll see how things play out. Yeah. Well, and I, we talked about that too. And again, so we hooked. Uh, hopefully, we can get you hooked up with our agents. You know, when the time comes. And uh, but that the story deserves to be told. And that's why I said we wanted to keep it. We didn't want to go off on the, the direction of Malvo and Muhammad. This is your story, Jeff, and it's it's an awesome story. And man, we are proud to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. And, and you know what, Jeff? You're you here. You're in, even in retirement, you're still doing the right thing. You're still trying to help your fellow man. And I like this thing that, that I've kind of coined because I'm not that smart. But uh, just because we retire does not mean that our oaths expire, right? Uh, not at all. You're always a cop. You're always law enforcement. You're always whatever agency you work for. Without question. You know the great thing about technology is, and the show is, we can kind of do whatever the hell we want. And after we got done with this episode with Jeff. He got to thinking about stuff, and he said, hey, look, there's some stuff I wish I would have covered. There's some additional material I, I'd like to give. And rather than us trying to figure out a fancy way to insert this back in there, we said, hey, look, just come back on. Let's take the time. Let's talk about it. 
Um, and of course, we had to do it at a time where Murph was up because anything past three o'clock in the afternoon, and he's usually got his fourth nap of the day. Yeah, so you're pushing Steve, it right I'm, now. I'm telling you, yeah, you're pushing. <laughs> so, hey, hey, Jeff. So let, let's do that. Let's dive back in because I know you sent us a really good email, and of course, being a SWAT team leader, you've got your ops plan, you've got everything detailed out. So let's talk about this. Um, uh, let's talk about what you wanted to get into because what you wanted to do was talk about, and really let's dive into the observation of the vehicle in the shooting port because this was the reason people kept looking for a panel van and other stuff, and nobody thought to look that snipers were hiding in the trunk of a Chevy Caprice, right? So why don't you dive in and take it from there, Jeff? And I appreciate the opportunity for round two. Um, some things I think that uh, should have been mentioned is that sniper uh, hide in port was also something that was utilized by the IRA with some success in Northern Ireland. And uh, in reference to the uh, Bushmaster rifle that was recovered, uh, bungeeing in place behind the uh, uh, back seat, it was a Bushmaster 223 caliber rifle, and uh, it had a fully loaded mag, one magazine, and an EOTech sight. An EOTech sight is a red dot system that's used to acquire the target. It also had a bipod that was folded underneath. Hey, Jeff, uh, you were also saying that um, uh, the HRT leader, his name was Pierce. That's correct. He, he, he saw something unusual about the back seat, which kind of led you to look in, or them looking into that area, right? What was that that was unusual? Uh, I don't recall, but for something, something just seemed unusual to him. And what was rather ironic is that the rifle had not been recovered at that point. So then we got back to the academy that morning. Um, at that point, we found out that evidence technicians found the Bushmaster uh, behind that back seat. Good observation on his part. So what you're saying is at the time of the assault on the vehicle, and you extract Malvo and Muhammad out of there, now they're in cuffs. And obviously, the first thing they're doing is searching for the rifle. There's no rifle, at least initially, that anybody sees, right? Uh, that's correct. Um, the, the only thing we found was a uh, .223 caliber uh, round in the parking lot itself. But again, the uh, rifle itself had not been recovered. But it seemed very apparent to one of the HRT operators, John Landman, that the trunk was being used as a sniper hide because he, uh, he came to the conclusion based on that um, port that was cut out above the license plate, the small hole. And uh, he also noted there's a sock in there to camouflage its appearance of the port. And uh, he was smart enough to recognize that whole set for what it was, even though the rifle was not recovered. I was not. Now, did, did he recognize that? Out at the rest stop on the interstate before the vehicle was towed out of the out of there. Yes, he did, because uh, uh, he's the one who made the comment that uh, there's a sock in that small hole to cover its appearance, which led me to believe that he recognized this as being used as a uh, sniper hide, even though the vehicle the weapon had not been recovered. Good observation on his part. Another good observation by the team leader Pierce that the back seat was uh, uh, something out of sequence there. That had to that had to create a little bit of a pucker factor, not having, <laughs> you know, you've got the hide, you've got the, you know, you've got the sniper vehicle, you got the two snipers, but you don't have that weapon, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, do we have the right people? When we got back to Cadbury, I was so relieved to hear that they had recovered that Bushmaster two two three caliber rifle, again budging place behind the back seat cushion. Something else I wanted to focus in on real quick too is, you know, I, I did this analysis, uh, and actually this. I'd kind of talked about this before about looking at the 9-11 hijackers and how much contact they had with law enforcement. And then we looked at the sniper case. They were contacted, at least their vehicle was, 13 times during that, I believe, 33 days. Wow. This goes to show you 
because their their tag was run through the National Crime Information Center, you know, uh, for the folks who aren't law enforcement, that's the central place to where if you have anything that's stolen or wanted or, you know, it's a central repository. So if I, if you're stopped by a trooper on the side of the road or stopped by a city officer or somebody and they check your plates, that's, it goes through this computer. And so the reason I say that, this is how effective what they did was, is because 13 times that plate was checked by an officer. Now, we don't know if it was the front plate or the back plate, you know, but if it was from behind, you're thinking, how good was this? Because the officer running the plate, that port is right there. They don't even know that hide is there. This is why it was so tough to find this vehicle because that hide, that sock covering it up, made it look like just maybe just another, it was a piece of crap car to begin with, right? And you make a great point because when I saw it, the car had this overall damaged appearance. And I thought maybe somebody had tried to break in the trunk previously and i'm standing only three or four feet away from it whereas the officer coming up you know he'd have to be right at the trunk to see it wow so as they say soldier carry on what's next after this so you're back you know you've got the tell us a little bit more about this eotech um was it based on the size of the sniper uh, of the hide you know the the sniper hole they they actually had enough room, right, to look through the, the, the site and acquire the targets? That's correct. It's a red dot system that, that lines up on your target and uh, um, effective way of, uh, you know, hitting your target, unfortunately. Well, that that's going to take a, a fairly large hole, right? How many inches tall and wide would you guesstimate it is? Um, again, I'm just trying to recall. I'd say it's probably maybe uh, two to three inches high and maybe a couple inches wide. Now, whether uh, a portion of that trunk was actually raised to some degree, I don't know. But again, um, clearly that's what they're using, obviously, in a covert manner. Wow. So they they probably couldn't extend the uh, bipod down on the rifle. In that not outside space. the, certainly not outside the uh, trunk of the vehicle. Well, so I mean, again, to your point, Steve, too, is that you, you after you assault this vehicle, you look in there, and the one thing you're looking for is where's the weapon. You're going. Do we have the right guys? Oh, it's, that's that's an oh shit moment. Let me tell you. <laughs> you made a great point because uh, we were doing so many ops. We always live by the uh, saying, never rest on your achievements. You're only as good as your next operation. So for the next 12 years, it's just operation after operation. I never really reflected on that event. And it's rather ironic because about three or four years ago, my wife and I went to a place called Brookside Gardens in Wheat Regional Park in Montgomery County, Maryland. It's a garden-type setting with a... Uh, Nice landscape and uh, lakes behind it. It's kind of a nice place to go on a warm summer day. So walking along, and all of a sudden in the distance, I see this very picturesque setting. There's this uh, concrete patio, maybe 50 feet by 50 feet. And on it are these two structures standing maybe four feet by eight feet tall. And three or four concrete benches. Nice uh, landscape around it and a lake behind it. So I was real curious about what this was. So I go walking over there. I go up to the first uh, uh, structure sitting there, and I look at it. I got to tell you, I'm stunned. It's the 10 names of the people killed in the D.C. region uh, during October of 2002 by the snipers. And every one of those names had a meaning to me, especially those killed in Montgomery County. James Martin, James Sonny Buchanan, um, Walker, the cab driver, uh, Lori Ann Lewis Rivera, whose two-year-old daughter was in the van at the time, um, Conrad Johnson, the bus driver that was... Uh, uh, killed at the time, and uh, it just struck me. And then the names of those that were uh, uh, killed in Virginia, Dean Harold Myers, Kenneth Bridges, FBI analyst, uh, FBI analyst uh, Linda Franklin, and then 
four seventy year two year old Pascal Charlet walking down the street in D.C. shot and killed one hundred yards inside the line from Montgomery County. It's the first time I ever like really started to think about this event and reflected on it because we were so busy during SWAT, and it really kind of hit me hard in terms of thinking back for a moment in time. Two people that really uh, wondered about how they were doing today was first the two-year-old daughter that was in that van where mom was killed. I mean, at what point in her life did she understand the tragic circumstances that her mom was killed under? And then poor uh, Iran Brown, 13 years old, shot in the back. And the quick actions of his life, or of his aunt Tanya Brown saved his life. You know, how are they doing today? Uh, I'm very curious. I hope given these uh, terrible traumas that they experienced that everybody's doing well. So when you're reflecting on this, Jeff, what was the thing that probably impacted you most? Was it was it about the loss of life? Was it about um, the the impact to these kids? Or, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, too, is how did this affect you? Because a lot of times in military and law enforcement, a lot of people deal with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. You know, you see lots of stuff over and over again. How did this affect you coming out of this? How did you reflect back on that about how it affected you? Well, it's funny that you asked because I walked over then after about 10 minutes to the other uh, statue there. And this is kind of a narrative of the timeline uh, of the events that unfolded in the D.C. region back in October of 2002. And uh, for the first time ever, I started to really think uh, how many lives were affected by this. Because I think the snipers were tied to 23 or 26 shoes across the country, ultimately. How many thousands of people, whether it be family, friends, or people that were on scene and saw the shooting that were affected forever thereafter? So for me, you know, being in being SWAT and, and just kind of, you know, operation after operation, you kind of get, to, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, immune to what you see and what takes place. But having been out of uh, law enforcement, you know, for years thereafter now and retired, first time I actually kind of reflected on things. It just kind of struck me in terms of... Uh, the magnitude of, of what these two... Uh, Can I share something with you about good women? Absolutely. Absolutely, Jeff. Uh, my wife, Jane, retires this Friday after 39 years of service with Montgomery County Police. Longest serving female in the history of the department. Wow. Yay. Hey, we got it. Congratulations to her. Yes, ma'am. Congratulations for that. And the question have... is, how does she put up with you? <laughs> <laughs> she has a lot of tolerance, obviously. I'm a very stubborn person. She recognizes that. It's the same way Trish and Connie put up with us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last worst thing in the world is for Steve to retire. What are you doing home all the time? Get, get, go somewhere. You Don't know? you have somewhere to go? <laughs> yeah. Hey, but, but Jeff, dive into that a little bit. I mean, it, it, you compartmentalize during this time, right? I mean, what what got to you the most while this operation was going on to where you kind of said, hey, I can't, I can't let myself go there. I've got to stay focused on this. Was there one particular incident that almost made you cross over and start letting the emotions affect you as opposed to staying, you know, operationally focused? Um, uh, relative to the snipers themselves? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and what, you know, some of the calls you went on. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, um, without question, uh, just the volume of calls I had run beforehand, at that point, I'd done 2,000 raids, barricades, uh, you know, over my career. And uh, like Steve had said, I saw an incident where a uh, suspect in an armed robbery who was the father shot and killed his uh, two kids. I think one was like 18 months and one was like three years old and then turned the gun on himself. And uh, again, for all of us in law enforcement, we see these type of things. Anyone who's done this uh, career for any length of time. You'll see stuff like that. But again, 
you have to kind of put that aside and, and move forward. I kind of let you go on before we actually gave some explanation because a lot of people will hear you talk and then they'll hear kind of a pause. And it's almost like you're labored for breathing. And then we did, we talked about what was affecting you. So why don't you give us an update as well on your health? It let, let you know, again, just kind of recap what it is you had. And let's talk about how you're feeling today. Can do. Uh, in 2012, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma cancer and also a cardiac amyloidosis. The amyloidosis is worse than the uh, cancer itself because what happens with that is protein deposits go into my heart and it makes the walls of my heart very thick and on occasion difficult to breathe and even have some conversations. So in this podcast, you might notice at times uh, I'm a little out of sync as it comes to uh, speaking and so forth with my breath. Also, in order to stay alive, I'm basically on chemo almost every day of my life, two weeks on, one week off, and that's how I function. But given the fact that I was given less than two years to live back in 2012, I've kind of defied the odds, and I'm not complaining at all. It's just kind of a new norm in order, if you will, to kind of uh, stay in the game. I've kind of learned what I need to do uh, on the medical side and, and other aspects to kind of stay in the game and so forth. You know, and people might be thinking with that much chemo, you might lose your hair. But, dude, you're competing with me for having terrific hair. How do you keep your hair? Well, well I'm fortunate in that I had a stem cell transplant back in 2013 that I coded during and so forth. And there, prior to stem cells transplant, I had a, a different kind of chemo that I had. So um, at that point, at some point, uh, most of my hair had fallen out and became very thin. But the chemo I'm on now apparently uh, does not affect my hair. So I'm fortunate that I'm able to retain it and so forth. Well, and Murph's Morgan, jealous. Murph's Mor jealous. Morgan, who told you you had good-looking hair? Did Trish tell you that? She's lying to you. Hey, uh, as many news appearances as I've done, I've graduated from the cable school of hair. So, look, I mean, I'm like, I got it going on. I got to go get a haircut today. You folks can't see this on video. and But, uh, yeah, it's it's been a while. I got to go get the golden locks trimmed, the gray, yeah, you, the gray locks. You don't look a day over 91. Yeah, yeah. You know, my grandma, she had a, she had a trick. <laughs> she said, look, at some point, women lie about their age, and they shouldn't in one direction. She said what you should do. It's when you're like 69 to 70, tell people you're 85, and people will say, my God, you look good for your age. But a lot of times, when they're 60, they try to tell people I'm 45, and some folks might go, oh, that's nice. I went to my high school reunion. You look at a couple of them, you go, don't lie about your age, pal. Just don't lie about your age. Well, and, and now our listeners know why we do audio-only recordings, because we have faces made for radio. Well, speaking for yourself, you know, I'm no, still, I'm speaking I'm still, for you. Yeah, and no, I make I make it on the air. Hey, uh, Jeff, let, let's kind of bring this uh, again to a close here because I think is there anything else you wanted to cover that we didn't last time? Because I know um, you you mentioned a couple things. It's like you were working basically the evening shift, you know, from uh, six at night to six in the morning, you know, and you had some teams out there. You were the team leader for your folks there. Uh, you know, is there any additional detail you wanted to add into that we might not have covered the first time? Yeah, I just want to make sure that uh, I expand upon the fact what our role was. Uh, I was a team leader for Montgomery County SWAT working the night shift, and my vehicle was a command vehicle. In the vehicle with me who was a team leader from uh, Maryland State Police and the team leader from uh, FBI HRT, Chuck Pierce. Our role was to kind of coordinate the response of the other nine three-man teams on the night shift to the uh, various calls that took place. And any given day, we'd get a dozen calls, whether it be a search and wood line, building, vehicles, this, that, or whoever it may be. But again, our role was to kind of 
coordinate the sponsor or three agencies to all the calls that would come in. And how did that work out? I mean, the thing, I mean, it's because one of the key things I think people don't understand, and, and some of them probably do, right? But you are a tight knit team. You have trained with your folks on uh, Montgomery County PD for years, and now you're bringing somebody else into it that you've never, maybe never met before, maybe never trained with before. How well did that integration of all these different agencies go? And you you make a great point because even though we're SWAT teams, three different tactical teams, every tactical team th- does things different. And I had great concerns about how it's going to work out. But very early on, early on, everybody kind of uh, uh, gelled very rapidly uh, into one team. So our movements became second nature to each other, much as it would be within your own team and so forth. So it worked out very well, much more so than I thought it would. Steve, you might try coming off mute, pal. <laughs> okay, I'm back. That's that's critically important. We are not editing that out. I'm sorry, pal. You, you're you're falling on your face in front of millions and millions of people. That's right. I'm going to cough and blow my nose next time on the microphone. Um, so, but that's critically important, especially what the the HRT commander said at the end, because this is a teamwork job. You know this. This Lone Ranger crap that's just television, that's Hollywood stuff, it does require a team. And the fact that he made that statement is just phenomenal. Because now, you know, for the rest of your life, you have the utmost respect for him simply because he made that statement. That's the way it should be. And one thing I think that happened over that three-week period is for all these different calls we were running, basically it was a rehearsal for the final operation because what was happening is we were gelling and becoming one team. So while we didn't specifically do vehicle assaults during the uh, three-week period, the fact that we were working together and gelling was kind of all a rehearsal for that final operation. Yep, you're building up that trust in each other. All right, well, let's get down to an important detail. Who had the best-looking uniforms? Come on, be honest. <laughs> who had the, the coolest-looking tactical uniforms? Well, we're, we're all in black fatigue, so I'll just oh, give it a, a, a Black ninjas. is the new black, yeah. You know, I just, come on. Back in the on. day? Yeah, back in the day, everything was black. So, um, but hey, you know the other thing too that's kind of interesting. I remember one time, just for shits and giggles, I, you know, when I was a state trooper and we were getting all this new equipment and stuff, I weighed myself in my skivvies. Then I put everything on and I weighed myself, and I didn't realize. And you don't realize how much extra weight you're carrying around. I mean, just normal outfitting back then, it was twenty-five to thirty pounds, and no wonder I had a bad hip, you know, in the back for a while, depending on how you're sitting. How much when you when you when you load it up and you've got your rifle, you've got your helmet, you got all your other stuff, your vest with the steel plate, you know, um, you know, all that good stuff. How much extra weight were you carrying? It's thirty-five pounds with the gear, and much of our SWAT physical fitness test is geared towards that. In other words, when you do your pulse, you got to do it with thirty-five pound plate to simulate the weight of your gear. When you do a rope climb, you have to do it with a thirty-five pound weight attached, simulating the weight of your gear. Yeah, I do that when I do pull-ups. I got like a forty-pound gut that I got to try and get up there. Yeah, but Steve, you're standing on a chair when you do the pull-ups too. So. <laughs> Don't give up my secrets. They can't see my feet. Oh yeah, you can't see your feet anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's still working out there. Hey Jeff, what does a normal day look for you now? Look like? I mean, you know, with with everything you're dealing with, you know, what 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 does a routine look like for you? Um, I get up in the morning, and uh, you know, I always make my bed because that kind of gets me in order for the tasks of the day. And then I do exercise. Exercise is very important in terms of trying to stay healthy when you've got a lot of medical things uh, that you're working on. But I find the exercise that keeps me on a positive mood, 
it might be the endorphins that are released, but it kind of gives you that peace of mind, happiness to move forward and do things. Yep. Yep. It sets the tone for the rest of the day. I love it. I love it. If you don't do anything else the rest of the day, you've done that. Well, just, just go to YouTube and look up Admiral McRaven, um, uh, addressing the U- University of Texas people. That's what he talked about. You read some of the leadership books. They say, yeah, make, it's amazing. Make your bed the first thing, you know? And, and it just, it's, you've accomplished something for the day. Like you say, you set the tone for the day. All right. So, hey, well, look, anything else we may not have covered in the first one, you want to make sure we get out this time, because if I bring you back on a third time, people are going to wonder if we have our act together, not you. So, uh, no, but I greatly appreciate the opportunity to kind of uh, bring to light some things I thought I admitted the first time through. Well, well, and look, you have an excuse, you know. Yeah, we just want to say, you know, thank you again, Jeff, for your service to your community. And please pass along our, our pride in regards to your bride for her service to the community as well. 39 years, holy cow, that's longer than I was a cop. I was there for almost 38. So God bless her and you as well, brother. Thank you. you guys have a great day. Hey, everybody, this is a special episode. Murph and I have just invented something never done before in the history of podcasting, or maybe it has, but we're laying credit for it. This is an embedded episode. This is where we have taken somebody who's got a story around the DC Sniper, and we're going to embed their story into the story of the DC Sniper, as told by Officer Jeff Nice. Well, wait a minute. When you said embed, I thought that meant we would record this while we're in bed. No, that's in I N bed. Oh, this is M bed, E M B E D, as in embedded. With you, you're still in bed with your slippers because you're moving to Florida, Steve. So. Yes, I am. I'll be in my speedo soon. Oh, oh, God. There's a sight. Oh, no, the podcast is over. I can't, uh, you can't unsee that. All right. And our guest well, over is shaking his head like, oh, my God. Yeah, well, so before he throws up, so we've got a special guest here. His name is Aaron Turner. It, his name used to be classified because even Aaron didn't know what his name was. He is the Matt Damon. He is the Jason Bourne of the keyboard. Um, and so he really he's is. A, he's a failed lawyer. Come on, dude. You couldn't you couldn't make it in law school, so you became a computer geek, didn't you, Aaron? Well, it, it, that's a long story in and of itself. But essentially, I, I saw the error of my ways when I was headed down the lawyerly path, and I figured it would be more ethical to hack computers than to to go down the lawyer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you know what I figured out, too? I saw a poster one time, and this gets back into Aaron's going to tell you about his work at Microsoft, but I saw a poster one time. It showed Bill Gates and Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan, it said, Michael Jordan earns this much for a game, this much for, you know, for a season, this much for a year, and then you look at Bill Gates. He earned all of that. What, what Jordan earned in a year, Gates earned basically in a week. Jeez. Jeez. Technology well, is the most scalable way to make a living, as long as you can stay out of jail doing it. Well, or as we found in the case of Bill Gates now lately, uh, keep your zipper up too. So <laughs> mm. there's going to be another. You thought Bezos's divorce was huge, you know? <laughs> yeah, not saying Look at says, this. This is going to be huge, huge. <laughs> you know, but let's let's not go down. Let's 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 bring this back to the embedded episode. So one of the reasons we did this is Steve uh, is actually going to go out and speak at a conference that Aaron is hosting. And as we found out, as we started doing a little bit digging. Aaron actually has a tie-in to the DC sniper case, not only with one of the victims, but actually one of the uh, pieces of evidence that came out of the car 
that Jeff, not, you know, when uh, Jeff uh, on the SWAT team uh, with the Maryland State Police and the four FBI HRT members, when they assaulted the car, part of the evidence that came out was a laptop. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But Aaron, before we get started, you know, uh, let's just give everybody just a quick brief overview of your background. How the hell did you get to the point of where you were behind a keyboard instead of behind a desk charging people 500 fucking dollars an hour to tell them the obvious, which is what lawyers do? <laughs> yeah. So um, I have always been intensely curious about technology. I was one of those kids who was getting in trouble on the school network. You know, I, Wait, I was did born... you hack into your school and change your grades? Is that how you got into law school? Luckily, I, I was a good enough student. I didn't have to change my grades. But let's say that I had access to look at what my grades were. Uh, and so the, um, the the situation was I grew up in that generation of when um, uh, Matthew Broderick and War Games came out, sort of that early 80s, mid-80s time frame. And I was just fascinated with all things computer. I loved to connect them together and just do things, whether it was gaming or graphics or different things. And so um, by the uh, early 90s, I had gotten involved in helping to write several of the protocols for email. So like what we came to use as email sending and receiving stuff. And so that just fascinated me. And then I got involved in building out ISPs um, uh, because I. So you can't. You have to define. You can't just throw terms out there. One of the rules of the show is you throw a acronym out. You got to define it. Internet service providers. Okay, so internet service providers. So imagine a closet with a whole bunch of modems inside of it, and that's where you dial into to get the screechy stuff where you'd go and do BBS. Remember the old AOL, you know, the exactly. screeching. Yeah. And so that's where I got my start is sort of hands-on building out the internet. Well. Um, uh, I then got involved in a situation where one of my servers got hacked and a group of individuals actually put some um, pornography on my system that was illegal in the state that I was living in. That's your um, story and, and I, you're sticking to it, right? I'm sticking to Steve, it. Steve, well, you treated him well. It was <laughs> me. It was Shins Comrade. Luckily, I, I actually had the digital, I, I developed a digital forensic evidence gathering technique, one of the first ones outside of the military, where I was able to show that it was these other people who put that stuff there and it wasn't me. Um, and uh, Were they uh, in the United States or outside the United States? So I was attending a private religious university at the time, um, and someone at Cal Berkeley thought it would have been funny to put some pornography on some religious university students' uh, computers. Ah. And so it was done as sort of a prank, um, but it almost got me kicked out of school. And so luckily I was able to show it with someone else's, and I stayed in school. It was at BYU in Provo, Utah. Um, And so... So uh, Utah was sort of a hotbed at the time. That's where the headquarters of Novell was. That's where WordPerfect was founded. So there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff going on there. Well, as a result of that hack, I had to essentially teach myself to hack back, right, to, to protect myself. And uh, this would have been 93, 94 timeframe. And, and so then I realized that everybody sort of needed this help. And so I just stood up a little consulting practice and began to help people protect themselves. So I would do what we called white hat hacking or you know, pen testing, penetration testing. And, uh, and it paid good money. I could basically sit down on a weekend, make a couple thousand dollars, and that's what I was using to pay my way through college. And when I went to law school down in Dallas, um, th- that community down there between the law firms and financial services organizations, they just need a lot of help. And, and so when I dropped out of law school, that's what ended up being my main source of income was helping people from a security perspective. And that's what exposed me to some of the more interesting stuff from a nation state perspective of when you see bad people doing bad things to, for example, law firms where let's say some you know uh, international criminal organization wanted to get into the law firm. And so they would call me in to help harden their systems. 
in the late 90s is when Microsoft found me and invited me to join their team. And at the time, there was no dedicated Microsoft security team. It was just sort of a volunteer firefighter approach to security. And so I had my day job that was focused on building internet service providers in places like Bogota and Caracas and other places in Latin America. And uh, in the meantime, I'm helping from a security perspective. And so by, you know, the, the early 2000s, I, myself and a couple of other people had sort of established ourselves as security leaders in the company, go-to people when really bad stuff happened. And so, you know, when Microsoft itself was hacked in October of 2000, we sort of formed a, a, an emergency response team to respond to the Russians taking all the Windows 2000 source See, code. See, I knew it. The darn Russians... You know, it's the same way the Chinese. I mean, it's. I think at one time even Bill Gates said ninety percent or ninety-two percent of the software in China was all pirated. Yeah, and that was one of the projects I got to work on. We did a deal with the Chinese government to reduce piracy, and as a result, I went to Beijing and actually helped to develop some technologies to protect Microsoft source code from the People's Liberation Army and some of the um, excellent hackers that the Chinese have. And that was sort of my first exposure to the cyber warfare elements that were going on overseas. Um, we actually worked with the FBI to um, develop capabilities, well, we actually tricked a couple Russians into coming to the United States, and I was the bait, um, and they got to the Seattle airport, got off the airplane, and got handcuffed. I know exactly the case you're talking about, mm -hmm. and they logged back in from their desk there back into servers in Russia, and this actually created a controversy because the question was, is could you seize uh, data from a foreign country through a search warrant from the United States? That was you. I, well, well, did you I ever was... know a guy named... Well, he I was, mean, I'm was not the that was you that did it. Did you ever know a guy named Tom Nesbitt? Yep, yep. So Tom, Tom was part of that team as well. Um, there was a wide group of people working on that between state, federal, Microsoft people, lots of people working on that case. Tom was one of my students. Okay. Um, yep. Back to the FBI. I'm from the FBI. I'm here to help. Well, yeah. <laughs> Actually, real quick joke. When we were doing the computer forensics training and stuff down in Orlando, Florida, there was me, two guys from Arlington County PD, and a guy named Jim Scripture from the FBI. Really good guy, Boston guy. Sounds like Ed Davis, yeah. you know, Steve. You know, yep. And uh, we're all talking about, okay, we're going to go in and raid this room. What are we going to do? I said, okay, I'll be the first person. The two big guys will be second and third. And, and Jim Scripture, the FBI agent, goes, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, why don't you just take credit and put out a press release? <laughs> I'm oh, good I got at that. that covered already. What else? <laughs> <laughs> They're good at that. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, but, anyway, but what's interesting, though, you are now starting to work inside, you know, federal law enforcement, um, and you, I just want to make sure that you point towards you lead towards you and Murph actually met when. So it was right after 9/11. Uh, this would have been mm -hmm. uh, late 2001, early 2002. 2002. When uh, when I started to work with U.S. law enforcement. So when 9-11 when happened, there was sort of this scramble for talent and ideas to try to say, how can we use technology to, to counteract some of the bad things that were going on in the world? And so um, some senior folks inside of Microsoft gave us authority to basically go and help right? and say, okay, here's, here's your rules of engagement, go and help. And so by late 2002, we actually established some early relationships with folks like Steve inside of the U.S. federal law enforcement. And so we were helping uh, folks at Quantico, at uh, FBI, and we make fun of them, but they were trying to help. They were trying to get stuff going in that time frame. Um, and then eventually, uh, what was nice about Steve's organization is that how should we put this Just rules put were there. flexible rules are <laughs> flexible for DEA 
right? They, they move. Uh, they're more like suggestions and not really rules. That's exactly right. Don't it, break it, the law, but the rules, uh, what the heck. Yeah, and so that flexibility allowed us to move almost a year and a half earlier than any other major federal law enforcement agency when it came to developing investigation techniques, developing capabilities to use technology against criminals. So not just being, you know, forensically sound in the investigation, but using technologies to maybe, you know, set up false fronts that could lure in criminals to do bad right. things Honey pots, under, things under like that, yeah. proper legal authority, right? So nothing, you know, uh, that wasn't under the guise of the Constitution. But, you know, so it was fun because myself and there was another individual named Rob Hensing who was helping me at Microsoft. We were sort of two creative young guys who, you know, we there, there's something broken inside of us. Whenever you're a white hat hacker, you have to have something broken inside of you. You've got to have sort of that little bit of evilness, right, that that uh, that stays controlled. One paycheck away from the dark side is what we That's used right. to say. And as I'm not talking to you from a federal penitentiary or anything, so obviously I've, I've made <laughs> well, it. Well, how do the we right know? Side. It's a gray background. It's a dark gray. It looks like there's some bars in the windows uh, the back there. The statute of limitations has run out, also. So you're safe. <laughs> That's right. So what was really cool is that Rob and I... Unless, oh. unless, Steve, just a minute. Unless it's a continuing uh, conspiracy. I'm talking there about you that. Go. You I, don't Aaron, I don't know Aaron Turner. Who the hell are you? Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, No, no. no. So, so by the time Rob and I get connected with Steve and, and his team at the Special Operations Division, we're able to sort of use our... our technological creativity to come up with some really interesting ways to look at how people are doing things, tracing packages through secondary technology sources, um, looking for the way that precursor chemicals are, are bought and sold in large marketplaces on the internet. Um, and so it was just really cool to apply our technological creativity to something that was actually doing good, right, where we were able to move well, forward. Well, Aaron, let's let's be honest. One of the biggest things you did for SOD is you brought in an early version of Halo, and you guys played it, didn't you? Absolutely. <laughs> So uh, it was the brand new release of the Xbox One, and we, you know, Rob and I were pretty good at Halo, so we thought it would be funny to bring this the, these games in. So we brought in four Xboxes, and this was before Xbox Live, so you had to connect them on a network together, right? So you had four Xboxes, and you could play 16 players in a game together, and we thought it was a hoot that we could, you know, use sniper shots to blow these DEA guys away inside of the game, because, you know, we're, we're these cool geeky guys. Well... Later, one of the DEA guys brought in his son, and then he blew us away, too. So, the kid you know, was 15 he, he, years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, to this day, to this day, you made a startling admission. I want everybody to know. You turn off the lights in your basement, you put on your blackface and your camo, and you play Halo, don't absolutely, you? Absolutely. And it's funny. My youngest daughter, I taught her how to play. So when she was in college, you know, the, the, they were co-ed dorms. Um, when she went through college here several years ago and the guys would get their Halo game out to play it and she'd go in they're like, oh, hey, you ever play this game? She's like, well, I've seen it. You know, I saw my dad play She's it. She's a ringer. Oh, she kicked her butts. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, for the uninitiated, technically the term Halo stands for high altitude, low opening when you're talking about parachute jumps for you special forces like Force Recon and SEALs and Delta guys. But uh, so that that was your, con you were, you were responsible for the Hugest drop in efficiency inside a DEA for like six weeks, weren't you? When you introduced Halo, I tell you what, I, and I'll admit to this because you know we used to, to keep the the uh, Xbox and the games back in the training division at SOD, and, and I had taken over training from uh, another agent, Steve Whipple. And a holiday weekend came up. You guys went home for the weekend, and I went. I snuck in the office and brought that home. And my wife and kids were out of town a whole weekend. I'm sitting there going, I'm gonna kick this guy's ass one of these days. One of these days, I'm gonna get him. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure I still couldn't. <laughs> you know, what, oh my God. what was great about those games is that 
um, it gave us an opportunity to interact with those agents that we worked with in ways that we never would have seen them in, in any other guys, right? And it really brought down the barriers that existed. Right. And, right. and, you know, by the time, I don't know, we were probably two or three months into the build into that program. And by that point, we had such a good relationship, whether it was through the Halo games, sitting around having dinner with these crazy guys and listening to their stories about crawling. Uh, I can't remember who it was. It was crawling through the Colombian jungle and doing crazy stuff. And, you know, uh, anyway. I don't know you, anything you, about that. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and and it, it just it, getting to know people at that level helps you to build a team where oftentimes that's difficult between a cybersecurity or a, a, a cyber warfare type person and someone who's actually running an operation. In, in the situations where I've seen where um, cyber operations have failed is because the teams don't communicate well together. And it was through those games like Halo that really helped us meld. It was. Now, did they take you out to the range and show you what real guns look like? I don't think we did any shooting with you guys. Uh, no, we did, not us. We did with FBI and we did with uh, SOCOM, but we never did with the EA. Uh, and you know what? It, it helped to build, to build and develop that trust factor between each other. Because here you yeah. got uh, you got Aaron and Rob in there, and, and we're bringing in law enforcement. Who are civilians. Yeah, and we're bringing in law enforcement from all around the world. And, and just like you said— the law enforcement guys are going to look at you two guys like, who are these two young whippersnappers in here telling us what to do? But the because Whip was in, Whipple was in there, I was in there, and a couple of retired DEA guys, and we're vouching for you. That guy that gave you guys all the credibility, and that all came from the trust and respect and the friendship that we developed over that time. Yeah, it was awesome. Cool. Well, now let's so so you meet Murph. Uh, one of the great tragedies that I'm sure it's tainted your career since then. I'm scarred forever. You're scarred. Yes, uh, uh, yeah. the backgrounds tough to make it through the backgrounds now for a clearance. I like to have but, a meaningful um, purpose in everyone's life. <laughs> so one of the reasons for this embed episode was let's now let's uh, you know a lot of neat stuff going on, but we now want to start focusing now on the DC sniper because uh, basically a year. After 9-11 uh, is when the car was bought. That's when the, the vehicle was bought. It was actually on September 11th, 2002. And sometime I'll show you. I'll send you a now an unclassified version. But I, we actually did some of the work I did inside uh, some places was we looked at the intersection between them and law enforcement. Same thing with the hijackers. And it's very interesting once you start seeing how many times they actually had contact with law enforcement while the shootings were going on, yet we were all focused on the white panel van. That's what everybody in the Northern Virginia region was looking at, the D.C., you know, National Capital region. But let's talk about let's not just those events, but how did you eventually end up getting there embedded with the FBI to where the opportunity came that you got involved with them? So take us on that path towards that, Aaron. Yep. So um, Microsoft is essentially... Uh, allowed for myself and a couple of other people to be the primary points of engagement whenever there was a technical question from U.S. federal law enforcement that they essentially would use us as the primary points of technical contact. And so I was actually at Steve's office when I got the first phone call from the FBI CART lab. So the from the point at which... Uh, CART uh, acronym. Yeah, acronym. Uh, <laughs> computer and response team, I think. Com computer analysis, analysis response team. team. Um, I, I trained those guys for a year. Let me tell you, I can't believe you messed that and they up. they have from your training yet. They're still... No, they haven't. Hey, but by the way, though, too, Aaron, um, add some context, too, because at this point in time, uh, 
DOJ and Microsoft were not exactly best of friends, were they? <laughs> yep. And so that, and that was part of the strategic uh, outcome or the hoped outcome of, of essentially seconding uh, myself and Rob over to the federal law enforcement is that they made us sort of a goodwill offering to say, hey, in, in spite of the fact that you're trying to sue us and break us up and you know run this antitrust case, here are these smart folks and we're going to loan them to you whenever you need them on from a technical perspective, do it. And, and actually created some goodwill between uh, the DOJ and Microsoft. Um, and I think, you know, in addition to, to, to the other things that were going on, it helped de-escalate that, that conflict quite a bit. And so, so we're essentially these goodwill ambassadors that are trying to say, hey, let us help you solve these hard problems. And uh, we get the first call from the, the, uh, the CART lab up in, uh, which at the time was in Maryland, and their forensics tools could not analyze this computer. So if you think about it from a, a chain of custody situation, the laptop was in that car, the folks you already spoke with were the ones who seized it, they tag it, bag it, you know, send it along the evidence chain. It eventually ends up in what was, at the time, the most advanced computer forensics lab in the United States of America. It's the combined facility between the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Department of Defense Computer Forensics Lab, and the NSA. So this is the main facility just north of, of NSA at Elk Ridge. The NSA yeah, being no such agency. <clears throat> yeah, and I used to teach up at Linthicum at the National Cryptologic School, so very familiar with that. But before we get to that, you actually had a tie-in, though. By the time the laptop gets there, you know, when they take them into custody, but one of the victims uh, worked for the FBI that you happened to know. Yeah, so uh, about uh, would have been eight, maybe nine months before the shooting start, FBI had really stood up a program, and Linda Franklin was one of the lead analysts who was building that cyber intelligence, um, not just forensic response capability, but actually going out and saying, how can we gather information to, to be meaningful from a national security perspective so the FBI could get up to speed? And so Linda was doing some really great work and had put together an interesting team. A couple of reservists who were former military intelligence officers were actually um, reactivated as the result of 9-11, and they were uh, assigned to work with Linda at Quantico. And so we, we had had some interactions with Linda as the result of that in helping her to stand up that team, gain capabilities, get perspectives about, you know, what, is it, what does it mean when uh, a criminal organization is trying to use tools like MSN Messenger or Hotmail or some of the tools that Microsoft had access to. And so we had had some interactions with her and her team dating back months. And so when the shooting happened at Home Depot, which is where she was killed. Um, October 14th of 2002, false church. Exactly. And so that, that really struck home to myself and others who had worked with her to go, it makes you ask the question, are, am I involved in this? Like, like, are they going to come after us because we've been doing something? Because it's just pure paranoia. There's, it, it was, it was nonsensical, right? You, your human brain makes crazy connections, but um, it did make us ask the question: Do we have some crazy connection here? So, it, you know, it added to the level of paranoia that was going on in the region at the time. Well, and trust me, we were all in the region at the same time, dodging, zigzagging, going to your cars, you know, standing behind gas pumps. Uh, but I want to kind of set the stage for this, though, too, because one, we talk about the laptop, so, but we have to go back and talk about September 5th. And I was just pulling up because I wanted to make sure I was factually correct, but it's Paul LaRuffa. He was a 55-year-old pizzeria owner. He was shot. He actually survived. He was shot six times at close range, locking up his Italian restaurant in Clinton, uh, Maryland. And that's when Malvo and Muhammad stole the laptop that ended up becoming center for this. So, um, uh, so the car's breached. 
now now we kind of fast forward to October 24th. This is 10 days after Linda's killed. The final victim was killed on October 22nd. October 24th, they get this. So when do you when do you get this call from the FBI to say, hey, we need some help? Yep, it would have been the first week of November. So basically, they had exhausted their um, capabilities to go after the system. Uh, the tools that they were using at the time did not have the technical capabilities to analyze a portion of the hard drive on this system. So for the non-techie folks out there, think about that You know, every system has some form of storage mechanism where the operating system and your files get stored. And prior to the release of Windows XP, that file system was generally fully available. It didn't have any protections on it from the factory. No encryption, not protected in any it way. It was widely available. So you could essentially take that laptop, plug it into a forensic analysis system, and get whatever you wanted. Well, with the release of Windows XP, what happened was is there was a new technology that uh, Microsoft had embedded called hibernation, which when you close the laptop lid, it shuts the system down, and it writes everything that's in operating memory, so all of the programs, the Word documents you're working on, whatever, it encapsulates that into a file and then writes it to the drive. Now, um, the engineers who wrote this at Microsoft wanted to make sure that they had some level of integrity, uh, and so they used a, a very basic form of encryption to encrypt that hibernation file. So think of it as setting a seal on it to say, when the laptop lid was closed, this is what it was, and so when it reanimates, it knows it can be trusted, so it doesn't create... Kind of like the old days, the king would put his ring, you'd seal it with wax, put the ring on there, have the official seal, and say, hey... This is the seal of the king. Hey, who knew we could make a tie back to the 15th century right. with this? But we did. And Nobody. So that basically told the system that, you know, you can open this file without corrupting it, and you're going to be able to reanimate this system without causing hardware or software problems. And so um, the laptop that the, uh, the sniper team stole uh, was this brand new version of Windows XP that had this hibernation system on it. And so what had happened was the last time that they uh, uh, closed the lid, it entered a hibernation state. So by the time the laptop made it to the FBI cart lab, uh, you basically had a situation where that hard drive was encrypted with this encryption key, this hibernation encryption key. And so when the forensics tools tried to reanimate it, it couldn't make sense of anything. So the, the tools... Could they get any data off of it at all, or was everything locked up? <clears throat> they basically saw that... Um, you could get basic operating system information, but you couldn't get all of the interesting stuff that the user had created. So think like of the, the user file files information, and, the doc, yeah, exactly. And so you end up with the situation where they say, "Okay, great, I've got you know, I've got the basics, but I don't have the juicy stuff." So that's the reason why they called us and they said, "Hey, our forensics tools cannot reanimate this. Can you help us?" So. Because of the tension that was existing between DOJ and Microsoft at the time, we first had to go to the Microsoft legal team and basically get permission. And Aaron, before you get into that, let's kind of set the stage so that people understand why you even went to the legal team, right? Because in this day and age, uh, the encryption that happens, nobody has access to it anymore with the iPhone 12 and stuff like that, right? But in those days... Uh, Microsoft, we don't want to call it a backdoor because it wasn't a backdoor, but the way it was designed back then, you could actually get, in a sense, a master key, right? Yep. To unlock encryption. So remember that this encryption was implemented not for confidentiality, but for integrity. So as the result, it used a master keying system. So meaning that there was a master key that was used to create these hibernation file images. And so as the result, if you got the master key, you could then decrypt all of the subsequent hibernation files from it. And that's just because of the design, right? It was never intended as a confidentiality mechanism. It was intended as an integrity mechanism. So 
we go to the Microsoft legal team and basically say, look, DOJ is asking for the decryption key for the hibernation file. Now, this would be the first time that Microsoft has ever turned over an encryption key to anybody. Um, and I can imagine lawyers falling out of their chair laughing right about this point. <laughs> DOJ wants what from us? Yeah, especially in light of the fact that they're trying to destroy as a company, right? So, so yeah. this is the same DOJ that's trying to sue us out of existence and destroy our company, and now they're asking us for help. And so we sort of had to bridge that gap um, because the, the small team of lawyers that have sort of set us loose to become liaisons with law enforcement weren't involved in these conversations. These were like their boss's boss's boss who were making this decision. And so finally, after I basically made my case to say, look, it would set a very good precedent for us to say we will help U.S. and their allies to do investigations at this level. We want to be perceived as an organization that is helping protect Western values and helping protect law and order. And so after an infinite number of conference calls, maybe two days of just successive, you know, people talking back and forth and emails and that sort of thing. They finally said, okay, you can do it. Well, within Microsoft at the time, there was a master database that would tell you the name of the developer who owned a particular portion of the source code. And so what we did is we went to the source tree and we found the individual who was responsible for the code that invoked the hibernation encryption key. And so we got in touch with him. We were able to get uh, the, all of the information we needed, get that key. Uh, we had a And when you say key, tell let, let the listeners know, what does a key, I mean, the key isn't a physical key, right? But what does the key look like? What form does it actually take when, when you take it and put it in your sweaty little palms to take to the FBI cart? Well, so think about it. The, the key is originally stored inside of the operating system when it's compiled. and So it's a bunch of ones and zeros. It's digits, right? Exactly. Now. It's a whole bunch of ones and zeros. And, and actually, the, um, the, uh, the human readable format would be more similar to what we call hex code, which is, a whole which is like um, hexadecimal. So think of it as a series of zero ones and a few letters and numbers. Too, Letters, right? numbers, yeah. Um, and so you have this big, long hexadecimal string of, of numbers. In this case, it probably if, if you were reading it and you wrote it on a chalkboard, it would probably fill an entire college chalkboard with this hexadecimal string. So I think it was an extremely long series of letters and numbers. We actually had that burned onto a CDR, so good old, you know, writable CDs. Um, this was before USB keys really caught on. And so we, uh, we wrote it to a CDR. And we did that also because we, we wanted to write it and seal it. So the nice thing about CD-writable technology at the time is you could write to it and then lock it, and then you knew that that file maintained integrity. You couldn't record to that disk again. Exactly. Right. Couldn't change anything. And so we took that CDR, and we actually um, – we were supposed to be doing some stuff for Murphy's team. We had to make up a story because at, at this time we weren't allowed to tell DEA. Steve, what? it sounds like he's about to tell us he lied to you about he something. Maybe we just talked about a long lunch or something, right? <laughs> uh, and so because at the time we weren't allowed to cross streams between the different work we were doing with the different agencies. And so we actually had to leave DEA SOD and drive up to the lab that was up at Elk Ridge in Maryland. And then um, we walked in and hand-delivered the, uh, the CDR over to the team there. And when we did that, it was really interesting because the, the system was there on, on the desk. Um, but then there were also the systems that uh, Daniel Pearl had purchased in Pakistan, uh, the three laptops that had Flight Simulator loaded on them. Uh, and, and Daniel Pearl was the New York Times reporter that was actually killed by um, um, she. Uh, Khalid Mohammed, you know, KSM, he was, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, right? He was beheaded. And that yeah. was part of, yeah, he was beheaded, yeah. And 
and so, you know, the, seeing those laptops and knowing what they were, it kind of sends a shiver through you, right? You're like, oh, man, these were, you know, actual machines that were used in the implementation of the 9-11 attacks. And so, um, so because we're the Microsoft experts, you know, first we deliver the, the key for, the, for decrypting the DC Sniper's laptop. But at the same time, they're asking us some questions about how would we go about doing forensics on Flight Simulator to get artifacts out of those other systems as well. Were those, now, was that a Microsoft product, the simulators? Was that, yeah. was that the Microsoft? Simulator. Yeah, it was the Microsoft Flight Simulator that they were using. So, so once we delivered the key over to them, they loaded it into their forensic analysis tools. They unlocked the system, and now they saw that the uh, Malvo and his companion were using Microsoft MapPoint to track themselves as they were shooting people. So they actually had created a digital map of their own crime. Um, and so what was great and very satisfying about delivering that key and helping in that is that we actually recovered evidence where it was almost irrefutable. They, you know, we had digital forensic evidence where they were tracking themselves with a pin in Microsoft MapPoint. So think of it as a very early predecessor of what Google Maps is now. Here they had a Microsoft MapPoint system tracking themselves as they were going and doing these shootings. And from the official FBI files, a laptop stolen from one of the victims containing maps of the shooting sites and getaway routes from some of the crime sites. I mean, I mean, they got them with the Bushmaster rifle, but it's like anything else. Is you, you really want to lock this thing down. You, you know, you just want to hammer them with everything. And the fact that they stole it and started mapping it, my first thought is, well, first of all, these guys are nothing but terrorists to begin with. You know, they're nothing but cold-blooded terrorist killers. But then second of all is that you're, you actually are doing this in a way that I don't want to say is smart, but from a tactical standpoint – the tactics they used caused fear. Everybody was looking for the wrong thing, so they were they were intelligent in the use of the tactics. But to put all of that on a laptop, I think to me was to me when I look at it just from a behavioral standpoint is they sat back, I think, and they liked it. They relived it. They could look at it and they say, "Here's what we did here. Here's what we did here. Here's what we did here." And from the digital evidence that was recovered, it was obvious that they were sort of training themselves to improve their operational tactics. So. I, you know, as we had conversations with investigators in the months following, you know, we theorized that they were using that map point technology to say, okay, you know, wh which side of the street do you park on? You know, wh how many getaway routes do you have? And so they were using the mapping technology to actually improve their tactics to become more efficient at, at, uh, at their terrorist campaign. So here's a little factoid a lot of people don't know that came out of the work that I did, but did you realize that Malvo and Muhammad's vehicle – um, that uh, Chevy Caprice, the blue Chevy Caprice, um, it's tagged. So there's a system the FBI has that, that is run by their CGIS division, their Criminal Justice Information Services Division. It's called NCIC, the National Crime Information Center. So when you have a stolen vehicle, a wanted person, it's the central file that all police officers check. Do you realize that their tag was run 13 times within 33 days by law enforcement. Law enforcement had contacted that vehicle and contacted them directly, including on a uh, off-ramp up near Baltimore. They, law enforcement had actually had contact with Malvo and Muhammad. And, once, and by the way, that's the only vehicle in the United States whose tag was run in the National Capital Region as well as down by Montgomery, Alabama, where the other shootings happened. And and that's some of the consulting we did is how do you get into this offline data and visualize it and show them this is what went on. And this is one of the reasons they got away with it for so long because we were sitting here looking for a white panel van. And instead, they were in a blue Chevy Caprice, which, by the way, 
A dark-colored or burgundy-colored Chevy Caprice was seen leaving the scene of a shooting four times in the offense reports. Four times the vehicle was seen and spotted. But yet, what did we? What did everybody? Steve, this goes back to stuff we've talked about. You, you just can't let the news lead you around by the you know the nose. Every time we shut down traffic, we're looking for a white panel. Van. Yeah, everybody was looking for that white panel. Van. And and I think the the key takeaway that. You know, if we were giving this talk in a format in front of the next generation of law enforcement folks, the next generation of intelligence officers, I think the first thing that we've got to learn from these kinds of situations, and hopefully we have learned to some extent, is you've got to break up your own investigative patterns. Um, and so as we were building out cyber investigative capabilities, one of the things that myself and the teams that I worked on did is we always tried to embed some amount of chaos where it would disrupt the, the manner with which we were trying to run the program. Um, and uh, oftentimes that was very, um, it wasn't appreciated by management. We'll just say that, you know, because they, they want you on a straight line. You're working towards this, this outcome. But later in life, uh, I got invited to work on a program uh, where we uh, emulated uh, a cyber attack against the U.S. power grid, where we actually blew up a, a generator out on the Idaho desert as part of a, a cyber attack uh, demonstration. And when we, when we did that, the, the main thing that we focused on was how do we make sure we're doing this in a way that had that chaotic element? Because we wanted to avoid those kinds of single-railed approaches that basically extended the amount of chaos that Malvo and Mohammed created. Well, it reminds me of the great movie by Clint Eastwood, Heartbreak Ridge. Well, maybe I'll make an appointment with you to pop a hole in your ass. Like he thought, commies don't make appointments. I mean, that's why he fired that AK-47 over everybody said. And that's the thing. In a real investigation, it is chaos. It is, but it's how do you manage the chaos and how do you just, you know, it's it's like a map. Put a dot on the map. I can't tell you how we're going to get there, but we, we all know where we want to get, but how we get there is going to be different. But I agree with you. I think that's one of the biggest problems, and this is one of the talks I give, is the problem isn't the problem. The problem is how we think about the problem. What do you expect the unexpected? That's the teaches you to do that. Don't get complacent. Yeah, that's why, Murph, I'm low-crawling into your basement uh, later this morning and uh, surprising you. <laughs> Expect the unexpected. Be careful. Be there'll careful. Be a, there, there, a little bit later this morning, there'll be a four-year-old here to kick your butt. <laughs> Maybe we'll play Halo, and we'll see if she can beat me on that. But, so... Um, eventually, so let's let's finish up on this uh, piece of this. So eventually, how much time did you end up? Was, was your contribution just initially at that point to give them the key? And did you have to take the key back? In other words, did you let them keep it, or did you take it with you? So we allowed them to maintain it, right? And so basically, we said, "Look, this is for you." And and the the terms of the handover were that it had to stay within that essentially National Center of Excellence laboratory. Um, now, eventually, we got calls from so many other folks because now you have window, the, the, the perfect storm that happened in this situation was Windows XP had just released. And so as a result, forensics tools that were not ready for it. Well, Windows XP took the world by storm. You now have tens of millions of these systems within a couple of months out there. People are using them. And so we eventually authorized the um, manufacturers and, and developers of forensic software to embed that as part of their forensics tools. And so that became a licensing situation where it was allowed to expand. But that took several months to, to come to fruition. Uh, and again, that was because it was for integrity and not, not for the protection of privacy of data, which is like we fast forward now, it's like 
if it's encrypted, it's encrypted. I mean, whether it's Microsoft or Apple or whoever else, it's like, guys, um, we don't have the keys to decrypt this. And that's been part of this, uh, they call it the going dark initiative when we started getting voice over IP, which is, you know, being able to talk over the internet or send data. Uh, when you get to the point to where you have encryption that has no mechanisms to access that you've actually, that's what they call it, going dark, right? So the difference between 2000 and now is privacy was an issue, but it wasn't the issue that it is today when we start talking about whether it's Facebook, you know, or what just happened with the whistleblower, you know, and things like that. So um, had that investigation happened today, had we had the DC sniper today, um, I, it probably would have been very problematic to be able to get uh, access to that data if it's encrypted, right? Well, you would have to use some tricks to bypass it. There would no be there. There would not be a single place to call to get the master key, and so you know that's why you know you see organizations who are doing high-level investigation, doing things like getting the credentials to someone's Apple ID, because once you get the credentials to their Apple ID, then you can print the keys to recreate the, the decryption pattern, right? And so, so that's why uh, your username and password have become so important within the Apple ecosystem, is you know once someone gets that Apple ID, then they can get access to the private key to decrypt your stuff. And so, that, so the, the thing to recognize back you know, 20 years ago was that in, in that case, that decryption key as we mentioned, was only for integrity. There was another encryption system built into Windows at the time that was developed for confidentiality. If Malvo and Mohammed would have used that other system, which was uh, uh, basically a uh, personal encrypted file system that would have encrypted those files, it would have taken a much darker turn, right? It would have taken us much, much longer. It would have required some brute forcing, would have required some very much more sophisticated technology, which would have destroyed the standard FBI chain of custody for digital files at the time. Right, because it would have altered, probably altered the what's called the you know the digital signature, the hard drive. When you take so for folks that are listening, here's the geeky part. I still I still have a little bit of geek left in me, but a when little, you would take these hard a little a little yes, <laughs> when you would take these hard drives, one of the ways you would change you would be able to prove is that nothing has changed on that hard drive for the minute you make an exact duplicate, bit for bit, byte for byte, is you'd run these algorithms that would create this very large mathematical value called a hash value, and then what you would do is you you'd seize it. You'd run this digital signature, you'd analyze it, then you run the dig digital signature again to show nothing has changed. And if one bit has changed, if one byte has changed, defense attorneys, as they got smarter, that's like tampering with the evidence. That's saying, I sent you uh, you know, a car to analyze and I got back a moped. What the hell happened here, pal? And, and that's what makes digital investigation so difficult now is because most of the consumer-grade technologies require reanimation in a way where there can be tampering. Right? It is conceivable that uh, a technically adept person could tamper with the evidence. And so, you know, it's, it's constantly the race. We were lucky back then 20 years ago. We were able to help. We were able to, to do that. But today it's created a lot of problems for, for investigative capabilities. Well, 20 years ago, Al Gore had barely invented the internet. So, I mean, we were just still getting up to speed, you know, on the internet and stuff. So, now, hey, man, Aaron, so, um, so what was, what, what was the final resolution? I, we, I know we've talked to you about it, but the folks don't know. So was your participation in court required? Did they call you? Did they ask? You know, what, what ended up being your participation from a legal standpoint after that? So we have, uh, you know, over the course of several weeks, we continue to support the investigative team. They would ask us questions about, okay, if you were trying to track something through Microsoft MapPoint, what would you look for? You know, what kind of file types, that sort of thing. So we sort of served as consultants to that FBI CartLab team. Well, by the time that everything's getting wrapped up, 
up. The way that prosecutors think is they always want to have the most viable or uh, most authentic, most credible witness that's going to present this. And so the, the, the U.S. attorneys who are involved in this actually get in touch with us and say, hey, will you guys come in and testify about how this evidence was gathered and, you know, this process so that we can really tell the best story. And, you know, Rob and I are dumb young kids, you know, we're like, well, we'd have no problem coming and showing up in court, but we got to go get uh, attorney's per permission. And I think the attorneys made the right decision, basically saying, we do not want to be in the business of providing expert witnesses. You know, we want to be in the business of providing technology, and we will train people to become expert witnesses, but we don't want a Microsoft employee to be an expert witness themselves. And so we, we never went and testified in court ourselves. We essentially continued in that consultative role until the end of the case. Well, at least one of them can't appeal now because he got executed. He's yeah. room temperature, so that's good for him. And unfortunately for the youngster, um, Malvo, um, they found out that what that he's going through additional legal proceedings right now because they said uh, you can't give a life sentence to a 17-year-old juvenile. So we're waiting to hear about that. But, you know, what I thought was interesting, and when Murph uh, first brought this up and, and talked about it, you know, what was interesting is we had this episode coming up and we thought, well, let's do a special kind of an embedded, mm -hmm. that's E-M-B-E-D, not I-N-B-E-D, Steve, <laughs> embed episode, and give you a little bit of context because the laptop was a key piece of evidence along with the Bushmaster rifle. So you take the rifle that ties them to the shootings, and then you take the mapping and the laptop that shows not only did they steal it from the guy, so you've got a connection to the victim, but now they are cataloging not only, like you say, I think to relive it, but also to get better at their tactics to say, you know, should we be on this side of the street or that side? What are our ingress and egress points? Because remember when these shootings happened, law enforcement was shutting down everything. They were shutting down interstates. They were shutting down 66. Look, 66 is a shit show on any given yeah. day. But when you shut it down and tie it up, there, there were nothing but lines of cars and taillights. Yeah. Um, you know, up and down 28, up and down 66, you know, this whole uh, region. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the thing that I find interesting is, is that it's always odd. We're only able to talk about this stuff openly decades after it happens, right? Because right. You know, everyone's under either clearance requirements or confidentiality requirements, that sort of thing. You know, for me to have this conversation, I still had to go through sort of a, a clearing process with Microsoft and, and, yeah, I know. I called up the folks and I said, hey, look, I know you guys. I actually used to work for the long corporate affairs department at Microsoft as an outside consultant. I picked up and I said, hey, Aaron's an okay guy. Just approve this. And you saw that. You, that came through, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Did it? <laughs> well, we're going to find out when I get a letter from a lawyer, me and Murph get one that say, hey, you got to pull this podcast off the Hopefully, air. Yeah. Well, by the time this airs, okay, so... Yeah. My guys in, in Microsoft PR, they, they said it was okay. So you know, we'll see. <laughs> and we're not yeah. really divulging well, any secrets here. Is this is now? Nah, I mean, this is all this is all public information. But what's always interesting when we do game of crimes, it's getting the story behind the story, right? So. You, 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 when you've got that first-person point of view, like what Jeff Nice gave us, you know, in the episode, he was there. I mean, he was there when they pointed the guns at Malvo and Muhammad, got them, took them into custody. You know, just the whole takedown. But but then you realize too, there's this whole story that goes on behind it that a lot of people. And I tell you, a lot of people don't even know a laptop was taken, much less they know about the rifle, because obviously that's how the shootings happened. But some of the evidence. So Aaron, I got to tell you, man, that was. Uh, that is insightful. That's one of the things we're trying to accomplish, aren't we, Murph? We're trying to provide insight Absolutely. And, to the people. And I'm, and I'm, I'm you know, sticking my neck out here when I say this, Aaron, but I doubt that any other podcast has invited you on to tell this story, right? No, it's exclusive. Game of Crimes exclusive right here. There exclusive. You go. We, we need to have a <laughs> <laughs> exclusive. You heard it here first, and this is the only place. 
Tonight at 6, could listening to Game of Crimes podcast cause you constipation? Tune in and find out. <laughs> well, Murph suffers from constant constipation. I mean, yeah, it's, or, that's a given. Or but, diarrhea. No, hey, Aaron. Yeah, so, hey, so what are you working on now? Let's close out by finding out what is it you're working on now and tell us what in the hell possessed you guys to invite Murph and JP out to speak to a bunch of coding and uh, geekers and gamers. I mean, what can two old dudes like Murph and JP talk to you guys about? Well, so the project I'm working on right now is called Syriax, Syriax Security. It is designed to help protect organizations from uh, ransomware attacks and other types of digital crime that goes on. Um, so most organizations have moved by this point to some element of the Microsoft Cloud, where they're using email or SharePoint or OneDrive Which or something. Which is called Azure. Azure, yeah, exactly. Or the Microsoft 365 or Office 365 Cloud. And so... Um, what we're seeing in those attacks is essentially sort of the same roadmap that Murphy and, and his team saw back in the early mid-90s when, when you have extraterritorial organizations, people who are operating outside of the law, right, oftentimes under protection of a corrupt government, running... Oh, Russia, uh, just to throw out something there, like maybe. the dark side ransomware gang operating with the implicit approval of Comrade Putin. Well, but anyway, I digress. You, you need to realize that the dark side is essentially just a franchisee of the Putin cybercrime family, right? The GRU, the SVR, whoever they need to be, that's they, they, prox they use them as proxies to uh, attack, you know, it's, it's rumored that they pay a 10 to 20% commission, right? So basically anything that they net, as long as they pay, you know, the, the Putin family, it's okay, right? Sounds like, sounds like something out of The Sopranos. Hey, you know, everybody's got to get their get. You That's know? right. There's a tax on you. D didn't Pablo put a tax on people too, Steve? Oh, yeah. When he was in prison. You, you paid 50% of your loads to Pablo. That's where Putin got it from. Nothing's free. With this intersection now of transnational, you know, essentially cyber terrorists, um, I reached out to Steve and said, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if we start analyzing ransomware games as if they were narco-terrorists? So if we thought about them as, you know, well-funded, well-coordinated, uh, protected by corrupt former governments, what, what can we do to help protect ourselves? And so we're going to give a talk where we try to, to think about ways that we can help motivate the cybersecurity community to think more like the, the DEA SOD guys, right? The help guys you, who go you to get into the psyche of the criminal. Yep. Well, and that's been one of my things, too. I do a talk called The Psychology of Cybersecurity. And one of the reasons, again, the problem isn't the problem. It's the way we think about the problem and the way our adversaries outthink mm -hmm. us is we say we're going to put something here and look at it for three days. And if it's okay, then we'll put it into our big environment. So what did the Russians do? Like in the uh, um, uh, solar winds attack, they just waited 10 days. They waited 12 days. They popped up their little digital periscope, said, oh, I'm in the environment I want to be. All they did was outthink us. They outthink. They out. They outthought proverbial, you know, thinking, you know, what we saw was conventional wisdom. And I think that's a great thing to do is that, by the way, um, the problems, as Einstein said, the problems of today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking at which they were created. So we've got to think differently, not to oh, paraphrase Steve Jobs too much, because I know you're a Microsoft guy. Uh, you have Microsoft code. I even see you wearing the old Windows. By the way, I told you, <laughs> I wonder what I could get for that on eBay. I have the original Windows 95 box. Uh, the gold edition. The shrink wrap got taken off it, though. I mean, that, I know the kids. Darn kids! If you give me twenty bucks, I'll take that off your hands. That's how much it's worth. To <laughs> no, me. no, no, man. I think I can get more for that. I'm just going to find somebody who can fake shrink wrap from the 1995. So, <laughs> hey, anything. And and you know, just to add on to to what Aaron's saying there. When this airs, which will be on th Thursday, the 14th, October 14th, last night. 
Aaron and I were in Salt Lake City and spoke at the Silicon, Silicon Slope, Slope Summit. Summit. Yep. And this is our first opportunity to, to get together and put this out there and see how it goes. Well, we will launch you into stardom. Uh, we do this on this podcast on a regular basis. We had James Murray from TV's Impractical Jokers, episode 15. Lou Velozzi and his book deal came out of episode four. Lou's now got... I saw Javier wrote the forward for his book, you know, Storefront, the life of an undercover ATF agent, you know, Storefront operation. So we are in the business of put, launching people into the stratosphere well, in wanted, this podcast. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, we, we are going to make sure that we promote the podcast in our talk uh, at the oh, yeah. Slope Summit. Um, and, and here's hoping that we use this as an opportunity to, to, to help educate people about the risks of the criminality of cyber problems. So, you know, we're talking about, uh, in, in, this, in this podcast, we talked about how, you know, cyber forensics were used to convict a real-world criminal. Well, there's a whole bunch of stories we could tell about how uh, cybercrime has resulted in actual infrastructure problems, the deaths of people, and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And you know what? The saying I always say is that, look, the, the, the tactics haven't changed over years, over decades. Only the tools That's have. Right. We now have computers to where before we used to use letters. We now have, uh, you know, forensics back when we used to have, you know, other things. So it's like, you know, the Russians have been doing this since 1917 when they invented the original intelligence organization called the V-Cheka. You know, they've been – the tools change, but not the tactics, you know. So I think this was very interesting. So look, Aaron – we are closing out on our embedded episode time, but I got to tell you, this was, I'm glad you came on and talked about this. You know, people thought most of the time when you talk to geeks, they're kind of introverted and you got to pull them out of your shell. I'm glad we didn't have to do that with you. You, you geeky former lawyer couldn't cut it. BYU, SMU dude. Yeah. I, you know, I've never had that problem, thankfully. You know, I, I've, I've been the geeky extrovert and uh, sometimes that's been my detriment. See, that's a contradiction in terms. Yeah. Yes. It but is. It, it is. But, and you, it's like military intelligence, jumbo shrimp, like John. Carlin said. That's right. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you guys. Uh, good to relive this. And it's also, I'm really grateful that we can document it because we're reaching a point in time where we need to document some of these things that happened decades ago because they haven't been documented well. So I appreciate the opportunity right. to tell the story. All right, guys, this has been a special episode brought to you by Murph and Morgan, you know, inside of episode uh, 18 with Jeff Nice, the DC sniper case. So, hey, uh, Aaron, I've got to tell you, great stuff. We're going to have to figure out some way to uh, dive into another case. because, And we're, I'd be interested to see, too, Murph, what people think about the digital, the cyber version of this. Absolutely. Because, yeah, and because this is a whole new area of crime, right? Sherry talked about it um, in her episode uh, doing the dark web investigation. You know, for the fentanyl. So there are cyber involved in everything these days, including podcasts. So whatever you do, Aaron, do not hack our podcast and change it to where Murph sounds like the smart one. I'm still the smart one. <laughs> Let me tell you, if anybody can do it, I know this guy can do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Okay, guys. This is great. You guys stay tuned. We got the outro coming Thanks, up. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Steve, we made podcast history. We did what, an embedded episode, and in fact, by the time the folks are listening to this, you will have been speaking out at the Silicon, what it's called, slippery slope, or what's it called, the Silicon <laughs> slippery slip, or the sloppery slippery slope. The Silicon Slope Summit in Salt Lake City, Utah. This sounds like a limerick, like you know, the six six sheep's, you know, something I can't even <laughs> so say. You can't it. say it. Some limerick out there. So, but hey, but that was so that that's cool because um, Aaron Turner. Uh, you met him, like I said, as you guys listened to in the Embedded episode years ago. 
great stuff. Uh, and, and again, I, I knew about it, but I didn't know the story behind how they had to get to it and exactly what was on the laptop. So to hear this kind of information along with, I mean, just Jeff's story, what he has survived and what he has done uh, and his book, you guys got to remember, go get his book. You can find it on Amazon.com. It's called Failure's Not an Option. Jeff Nice, N-Y-C-E. Not nice and sweet. You know, we, we said... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hard not to talk about that. That was hard funny. Not to, Joffs are nice and sweet, yes. Are you kidding me? Yeah, so, but yeah, go get his book. Failure is Not an Option. Jeff Nice, N-Y-C-E. Get it off of Amazon. Um, terrific read. And again, it's a story of survival. I mean, this guy, not only were they working their butts off, but then what he faced and his motivation for doing what he did, just an amazing story. Absolutely. And and Jeff, I mean, you just heard from a true American hero who is continuing, regardless of his health status, to do everything he can to protect the public. And then Aaron Turner is probably one of the smartest people I have ever met in my life. I'm, I'm very happy to call him a friend and and. You know, all these years later, what we did at Special Operations Division back in 2002 was phenomenal. It was a, it was a first of its kind. And to be working with him once again, it's just a real honor for me. So uh, thank you to Aaron as well as Jeff for coming on the show, giving us a fantastic interview. Yeah, and like I said, he was one of the first geeks, uh, nerds I've run into that's actually an extrovert, not an introvert. So that's kind of like a contradiction of terms. He actually wanted to talk. Yeah, he's got a great personality, and he's funny, too. He, he's hilarious. Yeah, and we, as we talked, we found out we had a lot of things in common, but listen to the Embed episode. So, guys, we hope you enjoyed that, and if you did... Head on over to Apple Podcast. Hit that five stars. Again, it's magic. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine. It's your favorite street magic artist. We don't know what it does. It just We just know it works, and it gets us up there, and it lets more people see our podcast. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll update it as we go along with merch, with everything, Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, you got to get on Patreon. Our Q&A, like we said, was great. We've got, uh, you know, the three things coming up. And I've, I still don't even remember what the third one was with Leo. So um, <laughs> it doesn't, ma- doesn't matter, you know. And, and you know, for the Q&A, go on our, uh, on our fan page on Facebook and, and send us questions. That's where we're getting these questions from. We're not making this stuff up. But if you don't send us questions, we will start making shit up. So. But if you're not on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, you don't get to hear the answers to those questions. So That's if you send right. them in, you got to join. So you guys head on over there and join that uh, again. And also uh, hit us up on social media, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, use our Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com. If you want to send us a one-off with PayPal or just do a pause for the cause and support us, or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. So, Steve, speaking of supporting the show and the next one we have coming out, this oh. also came via you. It came from uh, – the crime actually should be Nicolas Cage's acting in the movie <laughs> that was based upon this, yep. the Lord of War, right? But let, let's talk about – I can't even pronounce his last name. We just call him Zach. Yeah, I can't pronounce it either, and I've known Zach for a long time. Rob Zach, and he'll tell you his last name when he comes on. Zacharikachusti Resivralasaposity, something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's got about 48 letters in his last name. But this, uh, I was really excited when we found out that, that Rob agreed to do this. He goes after the Merchant of Death, a guy named Victor Boot, and you're going to hear the true story. Now, you may have seen the movie uh, Merchant of Death, and that's similar, but it's not a correct well, Actually, Lord of War is what it was called. I'm sorry. 
There you go. So um, just you got to listen into what links they go to capture somebody and how they got to that point. And I'm not going to spoil it for you now, uh, but we definitely want you to live, listen in. It just shows the international footprint the DEA has and how they can go after the largest criminals in the world that are having a negative impact on the United States. Other countries tried, were unsuccessful. Other agencies in the United States tried, but Zach and the guys were able to bring this to a successful conclusion. It's a great episode, very exciting. Yeah, and this guy may have been responsible for his selling weapons for up to 6 million deaths in low-intensity conflicts, so there was a reason they went after him. But I think We'll leave them with this. We don't want to say too much, but this all started with a challenge at the White House meeting one time when yeah. somebody basically said, I don't think you guys can catch him. And somebody from DE says, hey, hold my hold beer. Hold my beer. <laughs> we'll be <laughs> right exactly back. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And they did. They did. All right. So, guys, this is it. So, like I said, head on over to, to the Apple. Give us that rating. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook and the Instagram, the website. All of that good stuff. But we want to say thank you, guys. And hopefully you enjoyed this special embed episode. We've never done this before. We wanted to give you the story behind the story within another story. So, uh, you know, this is like one of those little Russian dolls hidden, you know, within another one. So we're just peeling back the layers of the story. And if you guys like it, stay tuned coming up, right? And thank you guys again, once again, for playing the biggest game of all, the game of crimes. 